Hey guys, welcome back to another podcast. Um, we have, again, for part two of uh, today's top podcast is the Cochise County Cowboys. Um, it's written and illustrated by Joyce Aros. I always get it wrong. Is it Aros or Eros? It's Aros, right? Aros. Aros. Yes. And so she is the author, and, and I connected with her on part one. Um, she wrote the book Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone. You can find both books uh, on the web at gooseflats.com. And Goose Flats happens to be uh, the name of the shelf or the uh, uh, where the town of Tombstone is actually located on. It's located on Goose Flats. But um, you can find it at Goose, Goose, Goose Flats, that's G-O-O-S-E Flats, F-L-A-T-S dot com. And both of her books, Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone and the Cochise County Cowboys, who were these men, can be found on gooseflats.com. And she's got a third book coming out, and I can't wait to read about it, but I'm not going to spoil the, uh, the opening of it. But today's part two, and that is the Cochise County Cowboys. No sponsors. We're going to go right into it. Um, there were four cowboys that, when I read both books, that always stand out as the, sometimes the most prominent. Um, a lot of a lot of people, and these are the Cochise County Cowboys, not Wyatt, not Doc, but um, these are the Cowboys that made Cochise County, which goes from about um, just above Wilcox into the Thatcher, Safford area down um, through Wilcox along the New Mexico border down to Douglas Bisbee over to Sierra Vista and then up, um, up along the 10. Uh, originally it was a different county. I think it was Pinal County, correct? I think so, yes. Yeah, it was Pinal County before they did a giant um, split, and that's how Johnny Behan ended up becoming the, 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 the county sheriff. And so today we're going to be talking about... Oh, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think it was Pima County. Pima County, that's what it was. Yeah, Not Pinal, Pima. sorry about that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's Pima County, you're right. And so um, we're going to be talking about Johnny Ringo, um, Ike Clanton, Curly Bill Brocious, and Frank Stilwell. And even though Frank Stilwell has an important part of history um, because he was involved, as um, all of them were in the Vendetta Ride, which we're not going to be talking about today um, with Wyatt but they all have their place. And and just know that these are our, our opinions. Uh, Joyce... Um, and I, we share the same passions. Um, she lives in Tombstone, so she gets to see it every day. Uh, I live up in the Phoenix area, and I get to see it from a distance. But these are our opinions, and if they differ from yours, I totally understand. But uh, these are our opinions. And again, you can find both of her books on gooseflats.com. So one of the people that is really popular to talk about is Johnny Ringo. Um, and... For the most part, a lot of people call him Johnny Ringo. There was discussion that his name actually may be John Ringgold. Is that correct? Um, that is a common viewpoint, but my research indicated that, uh, no, the name was John Ringo, um, not Ringgold. And uh, I don't know how Ringgold got started. It might even have been uh, considered a logical deduction of the time period. But it's interesting that with um, 
John Ringo, that nobody ever referred to him just as John or Johnny. Um, it always seemed to be uh, referring to him by his last name, Ringo, or John R. So that was kind of interesting. Um, there was just, uh, apparently he was a man who did attract a certain amount of respect. And when he wasn't drinking, he was a pretty mellow fellow. Um, you know, a lot of people um, think that he was, uh, like in the movies, uh, morose and callous and uh, that kind of person. But uh, um, actually, the, uh, the account seemed to indicate that when he wasn't on a drinking spree, he was very well liked, respected. He was um, a pleasant fellow. And um, quite different from what uh, we've been led to believe. I think Hollywood has a tendency to form different characters in a different way, as we all know. Right. And, and, and a lot of what we talk about, and you and I mentioned this on the first podcast, which was okay. these men were product of their times. Um, and I really want to emphasize that because the actions... You know, that the cowboys, um, the things that they did today would not obviously be tolerated. Um, In their time period, it wasn't tolerated, but it wasn't um, as bad because it was almost expected in a a weird way because they were cowboys. Um, The cowboy name itself started out now. Today, we refer to cowboys as a good thing and a positive at that time. Cowboys were, um, you know, they were, it wasn't a popular name to have, correct? That's true, but uh, it, it, interestingly, uh, what you're bringing out, it, it was also a cultural thing. And I think that's what a lot of people miss. Um, because the time period, you know, a lot of these fellows came from backgrounds where they or their families were survivors of the Civil War. And um, everything was, uh, as you know, the 10 years after the Civil War, it was a despondent time. And a lot of these moved on at, at very young ages, um, getting jobs as cattle drivers or whatever, in order to survive. And that obviously took them away from their homes. You usually took them across state. And so they, very young, they started out, having to be very tough men. They were in a rough environment. And, you know, in those days, there was no cushion. Uh, you worked, and you worked the best you could for what you could. And uh, it was just to make a living, to exist. And so these guys that developed uh, a rough uh, exterior. But on the other hand, they also seemed to have a basic um, sense of right and wrong and... Um, uh, a way of dealing with people that uh, really was uh, quite worthwhile. They're they're just an interesting bunch to me. Okay. But as I said, it seems to uh, be important to consider the culture of the time and how they uh, they developed in this way. Um, for example, uh, John Ringo. Uh, he, uh, he came across, uh, you know, his family brought, brought him over in this section, uh, by wagon train. His father, uh, was accidentally killed by a shotgun. And that meant the boy at a very young age had to take over being the male head of the family. And, um, as I said, uh, 
people have uh, quite a different um, idea of him. But what happened was, you know, I hope I'm not jumping around too much. No. The end of the Civil War brought about a time of, as I said, great upheaval and personal adjustment. And so these men, very young, usually they were just young teenagers when they moved on because that was the result. But um, what came out of that war changed the need. Uh, John Ringo ended up in New Mexico, Texas and New Mexico. And at that time, there was um, a, a range war going on called the Kudu War. Um, that was in Mason County. And uh, it went on for about 10 years. It was pretty vicious. It was the kind of thing where you would answer your cabin door at night, open the door, and you get blasted away with a shotgun. So he was involved in that for uh, quite a while. And it had a, a pretty uh, uh, lasting effect on him. And um, he he ended up uh, leaving that area finally and uh, came into southern Arizona. Now, interestingly, this guy was a hard worker. He ended up purchasing a ranch with Ike Platten, and the two of them, uh, built a commissary and they started growing vegetables and they developed uh, vegetables um, and um, sold from their commissary vegetables to all the neighboring ranchers. I don't know how they ever had much time to be outlawed, though I think occasionally when they got into drinking about they cut up pretty wild, like, you know, but um, they had invested in some mining interests. And um, all in all, they were pretty hard-working guys. Well, and so, um, I think uh-huh. they were hard-working guys, and I agree with that part. Uh, again, these are these are our opinions. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, though, that Johnny Johnny was also involved in cattle rustling, um, and as much as they were legitimate uh, business owners, as Ike Clanton and all of them. Um, it was common to go down to Mexico and steal cattle. Um, and, you know, and the Clanton, you know, without getting into old man Clanton and how he passed. And, you know, there were, mm-hmm. you know, there was almost a war with Mexico that, you know, due to some Mexicans that were killed. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy what was happening during that period of time. But, you know, Johnny was also probably involved in stuff he shouldn't have been involved in. Oh, all of them were. And and that, again, is the cultural thing where you had to make a living, you had to survive. And sometimes that required stepping over the line. For example, with the cattle rustling out of Mexico, most of the... Lynn Bailey, I don't know if you're familiar with Lynn Bailey, but he's one of the top researchers that I really admire, and he tries very hard to stay in the middle. He doesn't take one side or the other. He just digs up the information. And one of the things he brought out, which I really appreciated because it makes sense to me, is that when they occasionally went down and bought, and they did buy cattle down in Mexico, and they might buy uh, 30 or 40 heads, and they headed up across, and what they would do when they got to the border is they would shotgun them. In other words, they would uh, run them hard across the border, shooting guns in the air and everything. And 
run them across the border because the tariff was so high they couldn't pay it. And so they did pay most of the time for the cattle. And um, the, what Lynn Bailey has found out from his research down in that area is there was never any charge against any of these men by the Mexican government for stealing cattle. However, they were recorded to often shotgun them across the border because of the high tariffs that they couldn't pay. Correct. So, so all of this it just is, shows I'm where sorry. they did it uh, more or less legally, but then circumstances required them to step over the line and take illegal steps. And I think this is common in many ways among all those men down there. Right. I mean, you you have... It's the most interesting time in American history. Like you said, you have the end of the Civil War. You have men that have seen horrible violence. I mean, just, you know, god-awful, horrible violence, man against man, American against American. Absolutely. They, they come to the end of the Civil War. They, at that time, there was no, like what we have now, which is help and psychiatric help and veteran help. At that time, you were just like, okay, bye. And you were done, and they went home, and they couldn't be home, so they went west. Um, Revolvers were just coming to the forefront, and there was a sense of lawlessness to where you could pretty much do just about anything you want and get completely away from it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and get away with it. So, um, you know, breaking the law was probably more normal at times than normal just to get what they needed. I'm going to Mexico. I'm stealing cattle. I'm bringing them back. We're good. Um, the, the last thing I want to talk about, yeah, is, was, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. It was more or less survival. And so when they, as I say, when they needed, they stepped over the line, but they probably justified because of the circumstances they found themselves in. Right, and, you know, and again, they found it to be a normal way of life as much as they were, you know, in town. I'm, I'm always, I always, and I'm going to refer to the movie Tombstone because everybody loves Tombstone, but they refer to the movie. I, I know, but it, it, it honestly is what keeps, it, what keeps the town of Tombstone alive. Um, Absolutely. We're so, still milking that movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and they'll continue to do so. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the interesting thing about Johnny Ringo is they really portray him in the movie um, as being crazy. And, and he possibly could be because it's been written. And I wanted to kind of focus a little bit of time before we move on to Ike Clanton. Uh-huh. Is that in the, uh, in the end of his life... He came to the end where he was taken, he was in court, uh, he was, looks like he was acquitted um, of a crime, he actually was faced a crime of, of larceny in 1882, um, he had multiple brushes with the law, the, the, and, and somewhere along the line he ends up in Turkey Creek in Pierce, Arizona, and, mm-hmm. and puts a gun to his head and commits suicide, and that, in all the groups that I'm in, and all the books that I'm in, I've read, is one of the most debated things, items, about Johnny Ringo, is did Johnny commit suicide, even the coroner, even though the coroner reported it, it's hotly debated still to this day, 
you know, a hundred something years later is did Johnny Ringo commit suicide? You know, it's really uh, hard to understand. And I think it's just the so-called romance of the idea of the time period that encourages uh, that question. Because everything about him, uh, about this situation, the people who found him, the people who buried him, um, the, uh, um, the questions that were brought up, the discussions and everything, they all supported the idea that he, he did kill himself. And I don't know, uh, many people or many writers uh, want to believe that uh, either Billy Breckenridge did it or... Um, Oh, my gosh. Or Doc. Or Wyatt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been established that at the time that happened, Doc and Wyatt both were in Colorado. Correct. So they they could not possibly have done it. They wouldn't have found him anyway. If you've ever ridden horseback out there and probably haven't, um, you you have to be pretty knowledgeable about the area. Um, Also, uh, where he killed himself was very close to the house of friends that he frequently visited. And that's where his grave is, actually, in their yard. Um, I think he got confused. Apparently, he drank very heavy. He had been drinking for about 10 days. And he was just um, almost not conscious as his horse was taking him home. Um, Billy Breckenridge ran into him and... Uh, was just stunned at his condition and uh, couldn't do anything with him and just let the the horse take him on home. I think what he did was he got off. He needed water at the creek. Uh, He got off and, um, you know, he's not, he wasn't in very good shape. The horse wandered off and left him there. He he couldn't walk anywhere in in his boots. And um, it seems that he pulled his boots off and took off his undershirt and ripped it up and wrapped up his teeth. So maybe he was thinking of walking through the friend's house, which was very near. But he might have been, um, you know, confused and terribly drunk. So there's no telling. And maybe he might have just sat down in discouragement, <clears throat> excuse me, and just said, oh, the heck with it and put the gun to his head. Which seems to me the most logical, but, you know, the, the, the question will go on because we have no way really of answering it. <laughs> well, we, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, again, watch the movie Tombstone. And Tombstone mm-hmm. wrote a clever story to put Wyatt in a spot only for Doc to appear and then Doc say, you know, I've got a, you know, you know, my flight's not with you, Holiday. Oh, I beg to differ. But they put him there. Now, I've driven to the site multiple times, and people need to know, the distance from Tombstone to Turkey Creek is about 40-plus miles. And, yeah. and, it's, and if you take it as a straight shot from Tombstone straight through, you have a mountain range to go over, which is near the town of Gleason. You have a mountain range to go over. Then you have a large valley to get through. Then when you finally get to the opening of Turkey Creek, Turkey Creek is not easy to find because I believe it's in the Chiricahuas. Um, yeah, it's in the base. Base of the Chiricahuas, near Pierce yeah. Sun Sites. Um, you had a huge valley to go through. 
Then when you finally got up to this area, you had multiple creek crossings to get to that spot. It, it's not a convenient spot. It's not a place where somebody goes, oh, in five minutes, you know, Holiday, I want to see you. It would take some time to get there. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, and uh, there's no way they could have found him under those circumstances. You know, he wasn't even terribly conscious of, of moving forward. His horse was just taking him home. The horse knew where to go. Right, and the, the friend's house is right next to... Well, within within eye distance, because I've seen the home, of where mm-hmm. he's buried. So in the movie, they they easily portray, because they know for a fact there was a bullet missing out of his revolver. A hundred percent fact. A bullet's missing out of the revolver. So in the mm-hmm. movie, Doc outdraws him, shoots him in the temple, because they know that that's where, they know that fact, that he shot himself in the head. And then... Mm-hmm. In the movie, they show him shooting the gun, the, a finger, pulling the trigger, a reactionary. So that accounted for the missing bullet in the revolver. He falls into the V of a tree, which is exactly where they found him. Uh, when, the, when the Teamsters were bringing down the lumber from Turkey Creek from the high country, they found him mm-hmm. propped against a tree. And so the coroner comes and says, yep. Gun to the head, missing a bullet, it's suicide. All that we see here says suicide, no one else is here, and they bury him on the spot. Mm-hmm. In to do so, after talking to people and reading about it, today we probably could classify him, and that may be a stretch, and correct me am I wrong, as bipolar. Is that a stretch? Uh, it- uh, well, that's possible. There, there's no reason to doubt that. But um, I just kind of get the impression uh, the hoodoo wars were terribly hard on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent time in jail, uh, I think over a year. Um, it was a, a terrifying time for anybody who was involved in it because you had to take one side or the other. There was no uh, other road. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it seems like coming out here... Um, to this area, he wanted to get a of it all and change it. It's interesting that um, uh, court case pending in Kingstone, uh, and um, what he did was he wrote, um, he had the court case pending, and then he wrote a very articulate letter to the authorities, and he requested an extension due to a gunshot injury. And uh, he went on to explain that he wished to comply with the law and he hoped to remain in the area permanently. And so he was. the indication from that was that he wanted to remain living there and be a rancher and develop a life. And so um, I, I just uh, can't help but just think he was so despondent from the heavy drinking and maybe uh, when his horse wandered off and... He couldn't go walking anywhere, and he probably couldn't even find a direction because of the shape he was in, that he just said the heck with it and shot himself. Hmm. Um, it was interesting that the, um, and I don't know if you've read it, that the epitaph wrote a really nice obituary about him. And this is what it said, and I'll quote it. 
He was recognized by friends and foe alike as a recklessly brave man who would go any distance or undergo any hardship to serve a friend or punish an enemy. While undoubtedly reckless, he was far from being a desperado, and we know of no murder being laid to his charge. Friends and foes are unanimous in the opinion that he was a strictly honorable man in all his feelings, and that his word was as good as his bond. And so that kind of sums him up, because he he was a paradox. You know, there were the two sides to him. When he was sober, he was one man, and when he started drinking, he was an entirely different person. And um, I think I think it boils down to that simplicity. Well, I know that the the discussion between murder and who actually killed him and suicide will continue forever. Um, it, and it's a it's a great discussion. It's a good theory, things to talk about. And Johnny Ringo, uh-huh. is, you know, John John Ringo is definitely an important part of Tombstone in the Old West. Um, I think he is because I think he's a very good example of the paradox that these people lived under. Right. So speaking of lived under and a paradox Uh and the Old West, let's talk about, let's talk about Ike Clanton. Now, now, (laughs) and that's why we're going to, Ike Clanton is going to be your favorite. Now, I'm going to say some things again that are probably going to upset Joyce, um, and, and Joyce, Joyce will take it out on me later. The next time she sees me in Tombstone, she'll she'll slap she'll slap me around. Um, so, Ike Clanton is somebody that is in history and the way he's viewed, and and he did some things that were cowardly. I get that, but. At the same time, I'm going to use the way that the movie Tombstone portrays him, where you see oh, yeah. you see Ike Clanton in the Pharaoh scene, um, where he's Wyatt sees him dealing Pharaoh. There's Johnny Ringo. There's Curly Bill. There's all the principal players, and Ike Clanton starts smouting off like, you know, hey, law dog, law don't go around here, law dog. Now in yeah. my in my mind, I don't see Ike Clanton ever saying that or or in that tone because all the pictures and everything that I've read about the Clanton family from old man Clanton moving when the Civil War is over, I think he moved from Missouri. Um, correct so far, he moved from Missouri. And he, he actually went all the way to California. He was for a while in Ventura, California. He was in the next town over, which is uh, Port Wainimi. He was in that area of California. And then Old Man Clanton moved around, and then they ended up back in Arizona in Galeyville. Uh, They were in uh, the San Simon area. Um, And then they eventually moved down not in Tombstone proper, but across the the way and down the way from Fairbank, where the Clantons built a Clanton ranch on a bluff that kind of overlooks San Pedro River. You can see Tombstone in the distance. It was it was a perfect spot for a home. It's near water. It was a cool spot in the summertime. 
um, and you could, and you still have, you know, uh, Charleston is close by. Contention isn't as close, but it, it's still downriver, um, or actually upriver. And then you had Tombstone. So let's talk about Ike Clanton, and why is he your favorite? Well, I think yeah, Ike you know, became interesting to me because he always had such a bad reputation, and everything that ever connected with him in the movies or even books, everyone just automatically um, had this view of Ike Clanton that he was a, a, a drunken bum and a coward, and um, and I believed it too for a long time, but you know. Um, when I talk about these old cowboys, you know, I married a Mexican cowboy, one of the old-time vaqueros, and lived on cattle ranches. And a lot of the uh, cowboys that lived on the ranches that uh, or worked on the ranches that we lived on, um, they were products of their time, too. Most of them, believe it or not, had no interest in even going to town for a year at a time. If you were going to town, could you get it for them? But they really had no interest in going. Uh, they lived very much like the men of the 1880s, and I gradually got a whole different view of what old-time real cowboys were like. And I came to understand that Ike Clanton could not have been the way he's been described because no one around him would have, would have tolerated it. You could not tolerate uh, a coward. Cowards would be recognized very quickly in Ike's time period. And they'd be ostracized just as quick. Um, it's, it's true that most frontiersmen had little use for loud blowhards as well. And these, the circle of associates that I've moved in, um, it's hard to believe that any of those attributes would be tolerated in a man that worked with ranchers as well as outlaws. He worked with both. And so he would never have been tolerated by the men that he was with. But he was known to be respected and liked by them. And so that speaks a lot for him. Um, there's very little record on Ike about his behavior. Um, and what there is is just like one thing called to attention. I think Walter Noble Burns, when he wrote his first book on Tombstone, uh, came out here. And at the time, many of the people who knew all these people were still alive. And he came to Tombstone and spent some time here, and he interviewed all kinds of people. And um, he he went home, and uh, he changed it all. He gave he took these uh, same characters and and developed different portraits of them. And of course, I flattened with the one he picked as the uh, the cowardly uh, drunkard. But uh, when the book came out, uh, it's on record that. Many of the people who lived here and who had talked to him were absolutely appalled that they said that nothing like what we told him. And they could see that he had just uh, made it all up. He'd just taken the names and uh, developed them in a different way. So Ike has got a very undeserved reputation. And um, the more you uh, follow his record, now he did, uh, later on when he went up north, after he, um, he left Tombstone area, he and his brother Finn were up north. Um, and uh, that's when he started to get into trouble. And he was caught uh, 
as a drunk many times there. And that, I think, was the effect of losing, losing his father and then losing his uh, kid brother right in front of him just two months later. Um, I think that had a bad effect on him, just as Johnny Ringo's experience has had on him. So uh, I pretty interesting guy. He became more of a troublesome person and he, uh, he got into uh, rustling cattle off the Apache Reservation and everything up there and that's what eventually got him killed. But while he was down in this area in, in Cochise County, his record is good which is quite a surprise to most people. He's, uh, he's got quite a good record. Well, he had a good record. And he definitely got himself in the spots where he didn't need to be. I mean, um, there was obviously the the gunfight. Um, mm-hmm. He he wasn't healed, meaning that he wasn't carrying a weapon. Um, you know, all accounts say that he put his hands up and says, "I I got no weapon. I got no weapon." He wasn't healed, and you know why it pushed him away, and he you know he ran away. We know that's true, and you know it may not be exactly the same word for word, because the Clantons were not expecting a gunfight. Um, yeah. and, and you were not allowed to carry a gun in town, that, that we know. So Clanton, Ike Clanton did, wasn't healed. But then he was involved with meeting um, at the Tucson station when they were bringing Morgan's body back to Colton. And he was involved in the Vendetta ride. Okay, the Tucson station with um, uh, with uh, Frank Stillwell. Right. That's interesting because um, uh, they were both down there because they were um, called in as witnesses to a court case. They were subpoenaed, and that's why they were in Tucson. And one of the other guys who was from, I think, the New Mexico area had been sent for was coming in by train, and they went down there to meet him because they knew it. And the interesting thing uh, that caught my eye was when they, somehow or another, they heard that the Earth Brothers were on that train. So there's talk, and, and it was brought up in the, uh, probably in the station, and they learned that the Earth Brothers were on that train. Now, what happened was um, uh, Frank Stillwell turned around and he told, uh, he told Ike, and you better leave this area because the Earps are on the train and you, you may have trouble. So Ike, he sent Ike back to town. Interestingly, the Earps were after Stillwell because they believed he had had something to do with the killing of Morgan. Now, obviously, Stillwell must not have because why was he willing to stay there? He wasn't afraid of the Earps at that time. He was afraid Ike would be in danger and he sent Ike away. So I went back to town, and unfortunately, Stillwell got killed. But uh, I just thought that was very interesting. But um, there's really not much record of Ike. Oh, you were mentioning uh, at this gunfight. Now, again, the idea of Ike being a coward is interesting because when you go back over that testimony carefully, you see that what happened... When the Earps approached um, the Clantons there, Ike Clanton stepped forward two or three steps to meet them, and that put him right opposite Wyatt Earp. 
apparently his intent, the indication is his intent was to ask him, gee, what's the matter? What's the problem? Uh, Wyatt pulled or already had his gun out, but he took his gun and he poked Mike in the belly, much the same as Doc did with uh, uh, Frank McLowry, and told him, you know, we're going to disarm you, put up your hand. Mike reached out and grabbed the gun. Now he reaches forward and grabs a loaded gun in his belly and pulls it away. And when he does, it throws um, throws uh, Wyatt off balance a little, and Ike, the gun goes off in the dirt, and Ike runs inside to the, uh, the Sly's building to get away. And then um, Wyatt tried to shoot after him, and of course, by then it was too late. But the thing of it is, what cowards would do that? Grab a loaded gun with the man's finger on the trigger, and it's right in your belly. It seemed to me like a pretty courageous, though a desperate thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, he does all that. Mm-hmm. And yet, somehow, he is painted as a coward through most of the movie. You know, uh-huh. and and in life they paint him as a coward. There's a a gorgeous photo of him dressed, you know, fantastically um, at mm-hmm. that in that period. And when I look at the photo, the last thing I think is that guy is a coward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I I haven't been able to see him that way uh, for a long time. Um. He's well-dressed, as you say. You know, Tombstone wasn't a rawhide cow town the way the movies present it. You know, with long-haired cowboys wandering around in high-heeled boots and spurs flanking and so on. Uh, whenever they came into town, which was not often, they usually went to Charleston or one of those other places that was uh, a little rougher if they wanted to cut up. And in Tombstone, usually if they came here at all, it was business-related. So when they did, they usually stayed at the best hotel in town, which was the Grand, where Big Nose Cape is today. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they did was get a bath, a shave, and a haircut and put on a business suit. The spurs, or boots, the shaft. Uh, they all came off when they were in town. They dressed like everybody else did. And so um, Ike was dressed like a gentleman because uh, that was uh, that was the way he presented himself in town. Um, it, it's just very interesting how it has all gotten so, um, so twisted. You know, in, um, we were talking about him and um, uh, Johnny Gringo, uh, in early um, 1880, Ike Clanton and um, uh, John Ringo invested on 320 acres. And it was close to the CNA out there. And um, that they started by sowing alfalfa. And that was to, dis- to uh, sustain a dairy herd that they had, right. that they had brought in from the San Pedro Valley. So um, this is the work they were doing, along with the vegetables and everything, dairy products. This was all hard hard work that required a tremendous amount of physical effort. There was no tractors in those days. If you wanted to start uh, uh, any kind of farming, you're going to get out there with a pick and a shovel in the hot sun 
and be working at it from dawn till dusk. Mm -hmm. So I really don't see how they had time much for all the reputation they developed, though I think periodically they did cut up and, you know, go into one of the towns and get drinking heavy, but all of them did that. Well, uh, again, product of their time, and at the same time, yes. you know, there there were things that, that Ike Clanton did that were um, probably shouldn't have done, um, but there was something that surprised me through the, the reading uh -huh. of, of the books is that at the end of the OK Corral shooting, and there mm -hmm. is, and always correct me because I get it wrong, um, the, the hearing, not the Inquisition, but the hearing to have a trial. Yes, 30-day hearing. Okay, so they had the hearing to have the trial. The Earps and everybody were acquitted. Is that Clanton actually went to Charleston and tried three more times to have the Earps have a trial, correct? Yes, he did. He tried uh, two more times. Two more times. That one... And when they, when the Earps walked away from it, then he went to Charleston and twice tried to get the whole thing done again, but it was determined that there was no reason to. Um, Judge Spicer had a lot of influence in that time period, and he was, he was very close to the Earth. And so, um, that, there's, there's questions about that. But clearly, I did not go get a gun and try to shoot them on the street. He tried to do it legally, and he's not usually given that credit. Because he he had now obviously uh, Morgan um, and and Virgil were involved afterwards, and that was retaliation. And honestly, we're not going to have time to even talk about Pete Spence, and no, we're we're right already now. at forty two minutes. <laughs> well, <laughs> we we haven't even one hit of us, one of us talks too much. <laughs> that's well, that's both of us. Um, but I I want to focus. You know, I mean, there was the there was the um, Virgil and Morgan, um, you know, with Pete Spence and Frank Stilwell, um, which is I mm -hmm. think is going to be another podcast. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to focus a little bit, one, two things, and they're easy things. Did the Cowboys really wear red sashes? Where no. <laughs> no, there's no record of that at all. Where the red sashes were worn was uh, the early 1890s. And that was in Southern California. But I thought I read something that the red sash came really, and correct me if I'm wrong, from the cowboys would ride in the saddle and their gun belts would rub against their thighs and they would put a towel between the gun belt and their thighs to keep the chafing. Um, you know, I don't know if there's any real truth to that. It depends on, you know, uh, where it comes from and who wrote it. But the thing a lot of people don't realize, and maybe it is because of Hollywood and the Western movies, these guys who wore, wore guns, they wore them up around their waist. If you've ever seen that photo of the two McLowry brothers with a friend of theirs, you look at where their guns are. They're not on their hip. They're on their, around their waist. And that's where all of these guys wore their guns. They didn't wear them hanging down. That was something that was developed later on in the movie. Um, usually, if they were on, um, uh, if they were riding and they wore a gun, the gun would be cross-draw. It would be on the left side because you usually mounted your horse from the left side, which meant you swung your 
right leg over the saddle. If you had a gun hanging on your hip there, and your leg went up and over, the gun would slip right out of the holster. Right. So, yeah, so they they usually, Billy Clanton was definitely wearing, uh, because he had just ridden into town, he was still wearing his gun on his uh, left side around his waist, and that is where he tried to draw it, because he had it as cross-draw. He was trying to get it with his left hand after his right hand had been shot, and it was difficult for him because he had to uh, work it out of the holster, turn it around in his hand somehow, and then, you know, try to shoot. But, um, yeah, a lot of stories like that develop, and whether some of it's imagination or uh, maybe there was the odd one who did that and that's retained, I don't know. But most of these men, my understanding is, they wore them up around their waist, not, not down on their hips. Because nobody was interested in fast draw. If you were going to get into a gunfight, you'd find a better way to do it. To, uh, you know, um, you don't go and challenge some guy on the street and take your chances. Neither did the lawmen. The Earps, when they went up there, they all had their guns out in their hands. No matter what they said, the witnesses testified. Many witnesses testified. When they walked up to those cowboys, every one of them had their gun already in their hands. You're not going to take chances on getting killed, and neither would the cowboys, you know, when they're out there. The other thing about cowboys is there's cowboys and there's cowboys. Cowboys are legitimate, hardworking range riders, cattle uh, herders, and that's a legitimate job. Whenever I refer to cowboys in a gang, which there really wasn't a big organized gang, there would be two or three that ran together. four or five at the most, and did a few things. And then they go back to working regular, honest jobs herding cattle. Um, these, you could, uh, when I refer to them in my books, I usually, if it's those guys that are considered outlaw, I would capitalize it. Well, that, that's true. But we, we do know that the cowboys, the Clantons, moved around Cochise, actually Cochise County, or Cochise County. It wasn't Cochise. It was a typographical error. I just found that out. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, it should have been Cochise County. They moved around Cochise County, and they went to San Simon, which was their most northern hangout, because it was near Lordsburg, which was at that time a, not a huge town, but it was a town. And then they... One of their hangout spots, which is going to be another discussion, was Shakespeare, New Mexico. The Clantons, including Curly Bill and John Ringo, Johnny Ringo, and would get in and out of Shakespeare because it was not in Cochise County. So it was kind of a little safe haven to go down in that area and hang out and do some gambling and drinking and doing whatever. And that was in the town of Shakespeare, New Mexico. So if anybody's listening, please research Shakespeare, New Mexico. It will be on a future podcast. Uh And make sure you research um, Russian Bill and Sandy King. So, So just for being annoying as hell. So, um, you know, they definitely moved around the county quite a bit. Um, uh, Lastly, because we we honestly don't have a lot of time left. Let's talk about Ike Clanton's death. We we have no idea where he's buried. Some people say Iron Springs. Is that right? Well, um, or how his he survivor died. or his family relative Ike uh, 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 Clanton down here um, had claims that he has found the grave, 
and he was trying to make arrangements to have the body exhumed and brought here to Tombstone. This was several years ago. Um, I don't think it ever came through, and nothing more was done about it. And so uh, that's the understanding that his grave is up there along the, along the riverbank. In so Iron, in Iron Springs? Sure. not been established. Pardon? Is that in Iron Springs? Um, no, it's not Iron Springs. To be honest with you, I forget the exact name of it. I'll have to look it up and have it ready for you next time. I'm sure somebody's listening yeah. and they're yelling at the at the radio going, it's yeah. here, it's here. <laughs> you want to know where it is. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We should know where it is. Um, and so his... He he lived a full life, correct? Yeah, he did. Uh, up to um, oh, let's see. He was um, he was killed in uh, eighty seven. So he was yeah in his uh, I think he was in his late thirties. Right, which wasn't a long life, but it seems like you know <laughs> 30, <laughs> 30 to forty years old is a long life. Like if you made it to fifty, it was a godsend. Um, yeah, I think she could, uh, could do it without getting killed. <laughs> so, between the two, between Johnny Ringo and Ike Clanton, um, mm-hmm. when they were in town, and, and I think a lot of people have asked me this question before, and it was posted on a, on a discussion board, after the OK Corral, if they really were bad men, they would have had multiple chances to take out the herbs and Doc. Oh, absolutely. And never absolutely. did it. No, because they, and there's no record of them, um, you know, in any way being an aggressor in that respect. As I said, they're, they're a rough, tough men, and um, there's there's uh, probably very little limit to what they do if they had to save their own life. But uh, the indication is they tried uh, to, to live uh, what in that time period would be a normal, honest way of making a living, and um, sometimes you had to step over the line because circumstances didn't allow you to stay there. Well, and the reason I bring that up is, you know, people always wanted to know, they'll say, including myself, is you have this major event like the OK Corral, and then all of a sudden people just went back to their normal lives. Now, obviously, it, it hung over and People were discussing it for years, but the town went back to our normal life. It went back to mining, and it went back to gambling and prostitution and drinking and all the things that it did. But instead of Ike taking retribution, because if Ike was a real badass, I mean, just a horrible guy, he would not have gone to Charleston and legally have tried to have the Earps retried. He would have taken a gun and just, oh, there he is, boom and shot him right in the street, and there's another one, and boop, right on the street. He tried to do it in a legal fashion. Exactly, and he's not given the credit for that. And, you know, they tried to uh, hang the the, uh, murder of uh, Morgan on him, and yet it was established, it's been recorded, that he was actually in um, uh, Charleston at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the fellows said, swore to it was someone who uh, knew the herbs well and was acquainted with the herbs. So uh, obviously he was not involved in that. And the uh, the shooting of, um, of Virgil, to me, I believe that was vigilantes because the strange thing was 
uh, the horses, these guys were, after they shot him, and they ran down the street and then down Tufnut Street to where they had their horses down in the gulch. Believe me, no cowboy would have been that far from his horse, especially not if he was going to do something like that. These guys would tie their horse going to the saloon, and if they went to the saloon across the street, they'd get on their horse and ride it across the street and then tie it to the thing in front of that uh, saloon. They would never leave their horses uh, several blocks down the street if but they had it, to run for them. And, and we're coming up on time, but I'm going to say this. I think yeah. that the, in discussion boards including myself, that have always felt that the cowboys were cowards is because they did, and members of that group, shot Morgan in the back. And the, it's, you know, they shot him through a window in the back of Morgan and Hatch while he's paying billiards. Right. Instead of doing the honorable thing, as dumb as it is to say the honorable thing, which is to face off directly with two men face-to-face and call them out to the streets. And instead, Morgan's in playing pool, minding his own business. He's on duty. He's an on-duty officer. He's carrying his badge. And they shoot him in the back from the outside. And I think that's where a lot of people have a problem with the cowboy faction is that they didn't do it in an honorable way. They didn't do it in a way that Morgan could have stood in front of him and at least pulled a gun and defended himself, and instead they shot him in the back. Yeah, but then there's the question is, was it with the, you're assuming it's the cowboy. I, as I said, I believe it was a vigilante because the, there, there were three vigilante groups in this town at the time, and at least one of them had no use for the earth at all. And so very likely, as I said, no cowboy would shoot him there and then try to run two or three blocks to his horse and be um, be exposed in that way. But a vigilante, and also when Morgan was shot, the attempt was to shoot others because they, they just missed Wyatt. There were several shots fired, so it just so happened that Morgan got hit, you know, in right. the back because that's where he was when he was playing with his back, you know, over, over the table. But um, there's no, you know, there's no reason to assume that it was the Cowboys. And see, Johnny Ringo, now, like what you're describing, this is what he did. John Ringo challenged the out on the street. He he called them out after the killings, and he called them out to come meet him one at a time out in the street because that's the way it would have been done. And I think Ike Clinton would have done the same thing, except it wasn't his, his style. But, but uh, there's nothing cowardly about it. Well, I think that it's the same thing with with Morgan. It's uh-huh. over and over again, history says that men tried to assassinate, uh, not Morgan, but Virgil. Men tried to assassinate Virgil. Sorry about that. And instead, you know, maimed his arm, his right arm, beyond okay. use. I think it was a right arm, correct? Uh, I think it was his left. Left arm. So I'm trying to think. I'm backwards. Yeah, it was his. And so they tried to 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 hit his arm and or try to kill him, but they maimed his arm. Um, and the same thing, hid in the dark. And so the public says that you know it's with cowboys, and the cowboys are cowards because that's the way 
it's written in movies and stuff is that they're hiding in the dark. Uh, but there's an interesting side point to that. The people who shot him from across the street shot him with shotguns, okay? Why, cowboys all have a good rifle on their saddle, a Winchester 73 or, or a Henry, and they're expert shot. Why would they not go in there with it? They would have hit him with a rifle beautifully. Uh, just one shot. It is, it is recorded somewhere that Stan Clanton, when he went hunting, only took one bullet because he was such a good shot. He never missed. And so I cannot see the cowboys in that saloon, uh, in, in the dark there with shotguns. They didn't use, I mean, it's not that they never used a shotgun, but there was a time and a place for shotguns. And obviously, when you think about it, this is not it. This right. sounds like a town man to you. And again, I think it was vigilantes. And that, this is not just because I'm trying mm. to cover up for the cowboys. You have to approach the, approach it logically. Right. Why? Their best, their best weapon from a distance is a good rifle, and they're all expert shots. Right. One shot. They, they would have shot him through the head or through the body, and that would have been it. But these guys shot with a couple of shotguns, and it went all over the place, even up the, up the, up, up through the windows of the saloon and everything. Uh, obviously, they weren't that good at what they were doing, so it doesn't seem logical to me that the cowboys did that. And again, would they run for their horses a block and a half down the street? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely great discussion, and it'll be continued to discuss for hundreds of more years, and and it's because it is such a pivotal time in American history. Um, again, this is uh, our opinions. This is mine and Joyce's, and uh, a lot of people are you're either screaming at the phone at your at your radio, going, "Those people are idiots," um, or you know, or they're going to say. Hey, I, I want to read more and I want to learn more about it. So you can find both of uh, Joyce's books, Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone and The Cochise County Cowboy. Who are these men? You can find it at gooseflats.com. And that's G-O-O-S-E-F-L-A-T-S.com. Gooseflats.com. And if you actually get into Tombstone itself on a trip or a vacation, um, or a destiny, whatever it is, you can ask people for the bookstore in town. The bookstore in town does carry her books. You can also find her books um, in Fairbank. I definitely urge everybody to visit the town of Fairbank. That's right on the San Pedro River. It's been beautifully restored. Um, it's maintained by volunteers at the San Pedro River Conservatory Group. Um, and uh, there is an awesome bookstore inside the schoolhouse that has more Doc Holliday, Tombstone, Wyatt Earp, Joyce Aros books than I've ever seen. I mean, it has every book in there. So please bring your credit card and bring your cash because I'll accept both. But as always, uh, because I know, because I, I went in there and was like, oh my God. Like my wife is like two books, that's it. Because I would have bought out the entire place. I would have bought out the whole place. But again, this is Joyce Aros. Um, you know me, Mike Mayberry, HVAC reefer guy. And, but this is Joyce Aros, uh, author of Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone and the Cochise County Cowboy 
Who were these men? We are not going to get to Curly Bell. We're not going to get to Frank Stillwell. That'll be for another podcast. As always, everybody, please work safe. Be safe. Be good humans. Uh, please take care of each other. We all live on the same planet. We all breathe the same air. We all walk on the same dirt. Um, you know, be good to each other. And uh, and we'll see you next time. Um, anything, Joyce? We're good? Um, the same words. Thank you so much. Um, all right. We we'll see you guys. To further discussions. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye now.